forgot to mention that we have flowers that can be pinned on your mom's. I know it's in the afternoon already, but before you go home, make sure you pick some of these. And we have many left over. So instead of pinning it only on your mom, you could take a couple extra and then pin it on your neighbor, neighbor's mom too. If you want to go say hi and uh, reach out to them and say, you know, hello, mom. Okay. Uh, if you all go ahead and stand up, we'll go ahead and do the reading, of the public reading of God's Word. Adam will serve as my uh, response reader. So I'm reading in responsibly. Um, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Reading from the NIV. Now a man of the tribe of Levi named, married a Levite woman. Is it on? Is it on? Oh, the slide. Okay, I'll try again. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Is it on? And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitched. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I'll pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. All together now? When, when the grew child older, grew older, she took, took him to Pharaoh's, Pharaah's daughter, daughter, and he became, became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for gathering us here on this beautiful Mother's Day Sunday. Lord, uh, you have us commemorate that we were all born out of our mothers, and you have designed it that way. And the first touch of your love we felt through our moms. So we celebrate them to you, Lord. We, we exalt them because of you. We thank you for them. And uh, we ask that, that we would uh, live the remainder of our lives without giving them any heartache, but really... Uh, giving them a heart of gladness. Because we choose you, because we follow you, uh, we ask that you would lead us into a good life, a life that is just uh, worthy of your name and praises, and that the, our moms would be happy and joyful. May all the people that uh, hear the message today be touched by the content, that there is faith that is required of us, and that our faith that is not a, just a passive thing, but it is an active, engaged thing with the world, when we love our moms and when our moms love us, may that kind of love just flow out of us to our neighbors, the people that don't know you yet, so that they could come to knowing your salvific grace. May the words that is preached today be done with the, your spirit's conviction and power and all of us to be able to receive something that makes a difference throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray these things and the people of God responded. Amen. You may be seated. Fantastic. Hallelujah. Uh, why don't we begin by just looking at each other and say, Happy Mother's Day. 
Yeah. As we celebrate Mother's Day, I thought that we could take a, a look at one mother's faith in our Bible text. Now, when we read Exodus, you guys, how many of you, by show of hands, have read the entire book of Exodus, or you just know this part really well? Just by show of hands. You know the part? Okay, good, good. Um, this actually is a fulfillment of a prophecy that God told Abram back in Genesis 15. Let me read that for you. This is Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. God tells Abram this as he was already falling into deep sleep in the middle of the darkness. He foretells this. And, and when we're reading Exodus, this is what's happening. Now, when we look at the first chapter of Exodus, if you remember Joseph, Joseph is the, he, he was a very important figure in the history of, of Egypt. And uh, later on, it says that uh, his name was reduced. It was forgotten. He was a forgotten figure. And his name came to mean nothing. And this king, this pharaoh, is said to have mistreated them, the, the Israelites, they treated them really harshly, uh, reducing them to, to forced labor because Joseph was forgotten. And this is something that we should pause for a moment and consider. Just how much prosperity did Joseph bring into the land of Egypt when he had predicted there was going to be seven years of plenty you know, in their agriculture and then followed by seven years of famine? I mean... Because they were able to store all that grain in the, store, in the storage, they were able to sell a bunch of that food to the surrounding uh, areas. And Egypt became a superpower through that effort. He should have remained a heroic figure in not only the Israelite history, but Egypt for sure. They should have remembered, oh yeah, Joseph was a, he was a hero of ours. But we see that after some time passed, Joseph... Even Joseph can be forgotten into obscurity. They didn't remember him anymore. And so my question is, could even our Lord Jesus be forgotten and wiped out of culture in this world? Could that ever happen? That's the question. And I, of course we say, God forbid, that, that should never happen. But I want you to consider, once upon a time in Europe, Christianity was flourishing. Christianity was a main thing in Europe. Look at it now. It's just left with relics in, of the past. Some of the, the most beautiful cathedrals boasting all the stained glass and, and their architecture that's just so intricate. You know what they are nowadays? They're being used as nightclubs, if you could believe that. That's in Europe. It's a heartbreaking reality. And experts are saying that what happened to Europe is certainly going to happen in the United States. Have you guys heard this? This is what they're saying. Of course, uh, we cannot forget the name. We cannot have the name of Jesus forgotten in this country because 
our faith is not limited to our remembrance of Jesus' name. It's not just about us every Sunday invoking His name, but to let Him be known to all the nations. You know, even when I, you think I'm joking when I say, go to your neighbors with this and pin it on, the, on your neighbor's mothers, it's because that is the nature of our, of our faith. It's, it's an outreaching faith. We reach out. Sure, we reach in and to make sure everybody's okay in the fold, but we have to reach out. Otherwise, we lose the zeal of what the faith was originally about. We begin to think that it's about ourselves, and if our needs are not being met, then it's not worth uh, banding together. But no. And then, if we do reach out, this is how we'll, we will flourish in number like the Israelites did while they were captive in Egypt. What we notice in Exodus is that no matter how much the Egyptians, they oppress and mistreat the Israelites, God blessed them. God gave them a, a certain blessing. And what happens is that they just continue to multiply in numbers. They flourish. And they were so successful, they were so, uh, gr- gr- so much growing in number that, that the Pharaoh issued an edict to slay, to kill all the male-born Hebrew babies. And this, by the way, it's not an isolated incident from the Old Testament. We see this recurring in the New Testament. When King Herod hears about the birth of Jesus, the birth of a new king in Israel, what he does, he issues an order to kill all the male babies under the age of two. At that time, Joseph, the same name Joseph, the husband of Mary, they flee with the baby Jesus down to Egypt. And when you look at the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, we see that in the New Testament, he's coming around and doing a, make a, making a full circle. And uh, one of the features of human degradation by sin is the devaluation of human life. That's when you know a culture has hit rock bottom, when you, when you start looking at how that culture treats human life, Right? I don't know, this is a kind of a gruesome uh, video that I saw not too long ago, a couple of years ago. I think it might have been on Facebook or something. Somebody posted a picture of a little baby being ran over by a bus in China. Have you guys seen this? It was so disturbing because after the baby is hit and ran over by this giant bus, people around, nobody responded. Like nobody went to pick up the the remains, just nobody responded like it was just like trash thrown about, you know. It was shocking. Like I saw that it was so disturbing because how could people be so non-responsive to, some, to something like a crisis that just happened right in front of them? This happens because the culture is given to idolatry, making the people forget about the fear of the Lord. If you remember, when the Egyptians were told Egyptian midwives that were birth, you know giving birth to the to the, to the to the Hebrew baby boys they were told to kill the baby boys but they still let them live because they feared the Lord that's that's the background with which we have the story unfold now the birth of Moses it was at the moment of crisis Moses could have been taken out you understand but all of this is happening because of God's providence. The name of Moses' mother is Jochebed. It means Yahweh is glory. She conceived a child by a Levite man. And uh, NIV states that he was born 
that when he was born, he was a fine child. And that word fine in the Hebrew word is tob. You guys, you know, when we say good morning, good evening, they say vocal tob. They say laila tob. Tob just means good. The baby was a good baby. He was a manageable baby. Most likely he did not fuss. He, did, he wasn't prone to crying really loudly. And Jochebed was able to hide the baby for three months and raise the infant in secret. I wonder how, how nerve-wracking it must have been for her to do all of this in hiding, right? At any moment, if the baby was found by the Egyptian officials, it meant certain death for the baby, if not danger to the mother too. So as a mother, Jochebed is led to make one of the most difficult decisions that a mother has to make in a situation like that. As if to leave the destiny of the child into the hands of God, she waterproofs the bottom of this wooden box, woven with reeds, with resin and, and uh, tar, and gingerly places the baby in there and leaves the box on the river between the reeds, the notorious River Nile. And this scenario invites us to imagine the impossible situations that some mothers, they are forced to face when they have to make such a decision. There's a pastor that I know that has a story like this one. You may know him too. His parents left him at an orphanage when he was a little boy. And a businessman from here in the United States had gone and adopted him as his own son and brought him here. Now he's all grown up. He has two children of his own. They, the children are all grown up. They, they're, you know, finishing up college now. And uh, not too long ago, I remember seeing him on a, on a Korean newspaper article that he was still searching for his bio parents. He's wondering, as long as he's living, he's wondering, why did, why did he have to let me go? Why did they have to let me go? What was the extenuating circumstances in which they had to let me go to the... Uh, uh, abandoned me to the, to, the, you know, to the orphanage, right? As, as much as he is longing still to meet his parents, he says that he has already forgot, forgiven them, because who knows? I mean, maybe it's a good reason, right? He's forgiven them, but I want you to imagine how much anguish his mother must have felt in letting him go. It's not an easy decision, right? I am sure that it was an act that required going over or sidestepping the maternal instinct. You guys know that mother instinct is one of the most powerful things in the world, right? I mean, a mother, after they give birth in this excruciating pain, right? That word excruciating is, is perfectly reserved for the moment of birth. After they give birth to this, this child, right away they're able to to pick them up and nurse them. That's, that's the power of, of maternal instinct that God has, God has programmed into you young women, young, young ladies. Ask my, ask my wife about that, right? If we may take something away from the story about Jochebed, it might be the aspect of faith in our trusting God's hand. In the KSC, every Wednesday night, we have been uh, having a life series class for parents, parents' life. And uh, I thought that I would join. I, I joined the, the parenting game late into the game, late into my life. But uh, what may be challenging for some parents is this question of how far does our faith go as parents when it comes to our children? Now, I know that 
Adam, not in the not too not too distant future, you know, after he gets married, he'll he'll plan the, to become a, a dad, right? Nod your head if you, that's the case, right? And you might you might want to start thinking about that now and praying about it. To trust God is to see past the limits of our natural tendency to worry about our children. In the first in the first few years, you have to be very very vigilant because toddlers, little kids, they're notorious for getting into trouble, getting hurt, right? But as we get older, sometimes we, we have parents that only express their love as, as in concerns and worries. Our children, we, have to, we, we, think, we think about them and say, geez, where's your faith? Where's the faith that you say you have? Now, I'm sure you guys don't have parents like that, but, or nor that you're giving them reasons to worry that way. But sometimes you wonder. Some kids say this to their parents. I, I surely did say this a lot to my mom and dad, you know. Mom, dad, you just need to trust me, okay? Okay, you just need to trust me. I used to say that to my mom a lot. And, and, uh, but the truth is, I was not somebody that, that one could extend that kind of trust. My mom would say, like, you know, what, what have you shown me where I could, I could trust you? You haven't shown me anything where I could trust you, right? On what basis can I trust you? So the point is not that we trust our children, not that your moms and dads trust you guys, but that they trust the living God. Uh, I was not that trustworthy, but the moment my life started changing was when my mom started to let go of the worry and started to believe in God. She started to pray, and things started happening in my life. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, it's not always like pleasant. Things started happening, like things started changing in my life. Like somebody was grabbing my life and shaking me and going, come on, you know, come on, son, wake up. The best our parents can do is to lead us all into the direction of trusting God, to maintain our fear of Him, and to learn to depend on Him every day. That's the best our parents can do. And they can only really do this by showing you, right? If they can't show that they do that themselves, how can they really show you? So when you go home today, after our service, I want you guys to give your moms a really great big hug and thank her. Thank her and thank God for your moms. Amen? Okay, good. So the first point of our message that we draw from the text right away is, faith does not go back and worry. Uh, David, if you could go ahead and uh, go to our first slide. Faith does not go back and worry. Sometimes we think that we, we face God and we, we have faith, we trust but then we turn back around and then we start to trust on our own instincts, our own devices. We devise our own things, you know, and then we start to worry because, because we turned our eyes away from God. I want you to look at the risks involved, what Jochebed did, what the, what the mother of Moses did. When you leave an infant to, to flow onto the Nile River, the risk that child runs is not any less of being caught by the Egyptians. The gamble, the the odds are not in her favor just because she let it go into denial. The survivability does not increase any. If the child is not found by the Egyptians, if it floats away in a box, he can starve to death, first first of all, if if he lasts that long. But if we're talking about the Nile River, the Nile River is usually infested with crocodiles. If not crocodiles, with hippopotamuses, right? Hippopotami, is that how you pluralize it anyway? I mean, that little baby boy would just be a scrumptious 
lunch for one of those uh, predators. And uh, whether it is this way or that way, we can see that the will of his mother was one that had a desire to leave it into the hands of God. It's a very bold and difficult move, but she had to do it. When you young ladies later on become a mom and, and you know, your first child, you'll be so attached to your first child. But there will be a time when the child is grown and you will have to cut the umbilical cord. That's what they say, cut the umbilical cord. I was a big old mama's boy until, like, you know, I, until I got married. And then there's always, you know, buddies that say, dude, you have to cut the umbilical cord. You know, you can't be a mama's boy all your life, right? That's the, that's the way it goes. Once she has let the baby go, what we notice, she does not turn back. She's not the one staring out into the river, watching the baby box, you know, roll away. She doesn't look back. It is rather the baby's older sister who stands watching him from a distance. Can you picture this young girl just staring at that wooden box, a wooden box from a distance, just to see what happens to the to the baby? I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but uh, not too long ago, there was a popular documentary called Dropbox. How many of you have ever heard of Dropbox, the documentary? Have you heard of it, kind of? Man, I highly recommend that you watch it. It was about a pastor couple in Korea who had placed a rescue box out of the side of their building. And uh, young moms, in some freezing cold winters, when they, when, they, when they couldn't raise the baby any longer, they would sometimes, I mean, Korean young moms, because when they have the baby, it's usually unplanned, they will sometimes discard the baby. Sometimes they're found frozen in the winter times, like in, in, by trash bins, if you could imagine that. So in order to rescue these babies, a pastor couple, they had devised this box, this, you know, this metal box with the heat lamp and everything. And once, once they would drop off the baby, it would ring a bell, an alarm, and then they would take it in, and the, uh, and the babies could have a chance at life. And, and this documentary was pretty well known. I don't know if you, I mean, if you never had a chance to see it, I highly recommend it. It would be a good time to watch it together as a family. Now, when I am applauding Jokovic's faith as a mother to abandon the baby, I'm not, I'm not comparing that with this. With this. It's not the same thing when, uh, when moms who abandon their babies, they do it because they're afraid of the misfortune of raising a baby because they're not ready. You know? That's not responsibility, is it now? Just because you were young, you didn't plan to have the child, and then you had the child and you throw the baby away, that's not faith. What we're reading in the text is completely different from that scenario. Here's something that you should understand. To avoid responsibility out of fear of misfortune is not faith. That would be the opposite of faith. It's irresponsibility. The pastor couple who take in these babies, rather, are the ones who embrace hardship by even assuming the responsibility that was not originally assigned as their own. Some of these babies that are thrown away, most people in their rational minds would think, yeah, it makes sense because some of them have special needs. They have disabilities. They have severe handicaps or maybe even retardation, right? And these pastor couples still take him in as their own. So we don't want to judge the young moms. We don't want to be too quick to judge, but God does know each of the situation of these young mothers. 
they may, after they discard their babies in this baby box or wherever, they may live the rest of their lives being haunted, trying to forget that they had a baby that they had, had to once give up. I am sure that it will be uh, not something that they can so easily forget. So let's not judge them. Let's not be quick to judge them, but it will be something that they have to contend with all their lives. On a related note, however, I need to bring this to our attention because we're talking about babies being killed in Egypt, babies being killed by Herod and those things. I don't know if you knew this, but the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, require each state to do a report on abortions. And according to a report in 2018, there were 614,820 cases of abortion in the United States in that year alone, over half a million. Do you know how many Jews came out of Egypt during the Exodus? Only men who were of age, of fighting age, that was 600 men. That's how much, that's how many babies are just annihilated in one year by Planned Parenthood and other of these uh, abortion organizations. We have to ask, we have to ask ourselves, how different is this from that of Pharaoh ordering all the male Hebrew babies to be killed? How is this different from Herod ordering all the male babies under two to be killed? The only difference is that these are babies that are still in utero, in the womb. The common denominator that I have to point out is that these are all coming from hearts that have been darkened and hardened by sin in rebellion against the God of light. I think about my own mother giving birth to me. I was born because of that process. Whoever would interfere with that holy and sacred event of the birth of a child is against God of life. It's a rebellion against God. Now what happens next is that this baby that is released by faith into the hands of God is discovered by none other than the daughter of the very Pharaoh that had ordered death on all the male Hebrew babies. Think about irony. I mean, isn't that ironic? Can you think of a more appropriate place to use that word irony? I have to tell you, there is no better irony than biblical irony. And this is one of my greatest pleasures of reading the Bible. Verse 5, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of them Hebrew babies, she said. What we notice here is that even though this is a young lady who grew up in Pharaoh's courts as a princess, mind you, unlike her father, she had compassion on the Hebrew baby. She did not share the same ideas as her, as her father is what I'm trying to say. What we can gather from this is that even though the Egyptians treated the Israelites harshly, not every single one of them were like that. Sometimes we like to clump the group of people all together, right? We do that. And in the media, we, we see media actually encouraging that kind of thought and behavior. This type of disagreement in the, in the household, it can, can, it can come out of the same household. So we have, we have in, the, in, the, in the temple, in the, uh, in the Pharaoh's court, in the royal court, we have an edict for the killing of all male Hebrew baby boys. But we have the daughter that disagrees. 
We have that kind of disagreement that can come out of the same household, just like a, an ex-Muslim who has come to the Lord Jesus. They have to turn away from everything that they have known all their life. All their social connections, all their extended families and brothers and sisters, they have to turn away because once they have accepted Jesus, they're now infidels according to their, to their religion. They're no longer loyal to Allah. They're loyal to Jesus. They, lose, they, they, gain, they stand to gain, uh, lose quite a lot. All I know is that they will gain a lot more than what they were willing to let go because of their love for Jesus. When you, of course, when you gain Jesus, you gain everything, right? Even though you may lose everything in this life, Jesus is someone who will usher you into the safety of that journey into eternity, security of eternal life after we die in this flesh, that we will be raised again from the dead. So I want to keep you on the alert to this point. Uh, do not buy into the sensationalism in the media about identity politics. Right now, the hot topic, topic button is LGBTQ. LGBTQ, they have their rights as human beings. Would you agree? Yeah, everybody has their rights as human beings, but what they're doing is you have to see it our way. You have to see it our way. They're trying to make us surrender our point of view, our absolute point of view of God. They're trying to make us surrender that. Do not fall into that sensationalistic identity politics. Don't buy into the image that is portrayed about a particular race or how cops are portrayed. There are some bad cops out there. I agree. That doesn't make all cops bad. But that's how people are led to think, right? We got to be awake here because the media is constantly trying to brainwash us and manipulating us. Far too many times, people's emotions are successfully manipulated by the media puppeteers. And the Christians should be distanced enough. You, have, you can't be totally engrossed into what they're teaching. You have to keep a, enough distance so that you will not be swayed. Now, if you want to engage culture, you engage culture and society missionally with the gospel, not reacting to every soundbite and posting how much you care about all these issues that you're trying to signal your virtue to. When somebody, when a pastor, when a respected pastor talks about, you know, LGBTQ issues, a lot of people, will, uh, you know, will applaud that and put the like, you know, but uh, don't, don't, don't react. Don't react. I want you to, I want you to take a pause and respond thoughtfully. Don't worry too much about what other people think. Respond thoughtfully. That is the official position that I want to encourage you with, the M with, uh, with us in NBC. You know? But um, I, dig I digress. Let me get back to the text. Whenever we hear a story where a mother abandons her baby, it ends up becoming a very long story. But, you know, like an epic saga that has, you know, your heart wrench, right? What sounds like the beginning of a multi-season Korean drama concludes on the very same day. You know when, uh, when Jokovic, like lets the baby go and float over the Nile on, in that box? And then when she gets the baby back, on the very same day! You know what I mean? What an amazing story. I, lo I love how there is uh, no long-awaiting periods of heartaches and, and tears and sorrow and leaving the baby. What we see from the, the, the text the second part that I want to, for you guys to take away is that God's providence, God providing, the evidence that God cares about you and He provides for our needs is manifest by our faith. Remember I, I preached to you a couple weeks ago that you don't, you don't see to believe, you believe to see. 
When you have the faith, when you trust in the living God, is when you notice that He's doing things in your life. There are people that are unbelievers because they just don't see that. They can't, they can't believe it, so they, they don't see the evidence of what God does. But if you believe, every day is a brand new adventure with the living God putting something in your life for you to contend with and to, for you to interact with, right? That's the nature of a belief. God's providence is made manifest. It manifests by our faith. A person can read the same story that we just read right now and merely take away a convenient coincidence. Oh, what a coincidence. Okay, that could have happened. That's kind of neat. I'll give you that. And that's where they stop. But not so with those of us who have faith. What we notice is that the older sister who had been watching the baby from a distance upon seeing him being picked up by the princess, she runs along and she steps up. Should I go and get a woman to nurse this baby from among the Hebrews? This young girl that asked that question, that's Moses' sister. And who does she go and get? Her own mom. Moses' mom. What a sassy little girl. You guys guys think sassy is a bad word, right? Sassy actually means lively, bold, and full of spirit. Cheeky. Jeannie, you know when I read this story, I kind of see that little girl in you. You kind of like that. You would run and then tell. You would run and tell her, you know, hey, should I go get the, should I go get the mom? Wouldn't you do that? I could totally see you doing that. Anyway, she was not passive, shy, or powerless. For those of us, you know, Korean girls, you know, we, we're thinking we have to be shy. You know, Japanese girls, I don't want to perpetuate stereotypes, but they're like, hey, hey, they cover their face. And, you know what I mean? We think that we have to be, that's the only way to be proper and prim, but that's not the case. She ran and seized the opportunity to save her baby brother, and not only that, in the best way possible. The best way possible. She practically opened the door to just an, an amazing blessing. This, too, is faith. It's faith. Without this kind of faith, you can miss out on the hand of God that comes in such opportunities. I don't know if you guys ever heard this joke. It's an, it's an old joke where this uh, pastor was like drowning and he's like praying, oh, Lord, Lord, help me, help me. And so like a boat comes by, <laughs> you know, he's like drowning, his boat comes by and then like says, oh, you know, how can we help you? And he's like, no, 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 thank you. I'm, I'm praying to God, he will help me. Like there was a help that came right in front of him, didn't take it, right? What's he waiting for really? Our God is someone who really does open such doors. He does bring prosperity. My t- in my testimony, my life changed, guys. The way I live my life today, I mean, my wife sees a lot more than you guys, and she sees the areas that haven't changed yet. But if she, if she knew me how I was before Jesus, I, don't, she, I think she'd run away. She'd be like, okay, <laughs> you know. That's how much change does happen, and it's an improvement. How could people, how could non-believers look at us and want to come to Jesus if our life did not change for the better, right? The people that were tangled up in trouble, they get loosened and they, they get freedom from those troubles because the Lord guides them, right? Now, this is not to say that I, I insist that the gospel is only about prosperity, but that in the gospel, there is a way that can only be furnished by 
God in heaven. We do talk about this a lot in our modern day society. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie called Pursuit of Happiness. Very moving story. It's about a single dad that wants, has to make it, and there's some nights where they have to sleep in the, in, the, in the public bathroom, locking themselves in, you know? And there is that kind of a, a like a no-nonsense kind of going all the way kind of effort that we have to put in. But even in that story, if you watch it carefully, the divine hand was there. The divine hand was there that God was opening the doors for us to be able to make a way. He makes a way for us. And it's not always the easy way. <laughs> That's the thing. Some people were conditioned to looking for the easy way. Sometimes it's not the smoothest path, but it is, in Lord Jesus, the path of salvation. The path of salvation. Not only does Moses' sister get her own mom to nurse the baby, now her mom gets paid to nurse her own child. They're getting the royal court's support for feeding her own child. Can we say win-win situation? Amen? That's what's going on in this story. The box that held baby Moses, you know that, that word in the Hebrew, when you look at our text in the original language, the word is teba. This word appears in Genesis 6, 14, to describe the, the ark that God had called Noah to build, Teba. So whether we're talking about Noah's ark or even talking about Moses' little basket, both stories feature varying details of what salvation looks like. In the case of Noah's ark, we see a family and a host of animals being preserved by His grace during the most cataclysmic flood to ever face the whole earth. In the story of Moses, we witness His grace of not only keeping the baby safe during a very risky trial, but to carry the event into a prosperous and an advantageous situation. Win-win situation. Our God, my brothers and sisters, is a win-win situation making God. Win-win situation. It is a grace no different than the very one that imputed Jesus' righteousness unto us in the final judgment. Do you know why we're able to sleep at nights in total peace when there is absolute chaos? It's because in that final day, God will look at us and say, well, I'm not looking at you because your righteousness was enough. But I see Jesus' right, righteousness, you, you have been stamped with it. That's why He will pass over the judgment and the anger and the wrath. In the providence of God was certainly the faith of a mother who had denied herself and had to let go of the baby. Faith, by the way, does involve that, where you just kind of remove yourself and you trust God, right? But, but within it was also the love of his older sister who kept an eye on him until the very end. His, his older sister didn't just like let her go and then like go and play with the frogs later. It wasn't like that. She was standing there, keeping an eye on the basket. How long, did it, how long was it? We don't know. Maybe, maybe Moses' mom let go of that box early in the morning while nobody was awake. Maybe she just you know, secretly uh, spied on her, and maybe, maybe the box wound up being found by the, the Pharaoh's daughter maybe in the evening. So maybe it could have been a whole day's watching. You don't know. 
I don't want to promote some kind of a stereotype in how Moses' sister handles the situation, but I would find this. This is a quintessential, shall I call it Jewishness. You guys know Jews, Jewish people don't take a loss. You guys know that, right? They don't take a loss. That's why they're successful in business. That's why they're entrepreneurs, right? I see something that is so Jewish about Moses' sister that we could desire for ourselves. We, we want to adopt that kind of a faith. That's faith. A particular seizing the opportunity to lead the situation to maximum benefit. Right? It is both wisdom and courage that we find in her. The faith that has us privy to God's providence is not blind faith. God shows us what kind of, of a being He is specifically. Even if we were to examine the created order of all the intricate th things in the design, in nature, we cannot cease to marvel at His perfection. Uh, any of you uh, from this group, if you're like uh, engineering or, or science majors or, or architecture majors, you know that there's design in everything that we have. Like even in the building that, we, that is standing where we're, where we're having this worship service, there was a designer that designed all the purposeful things that exist around it. When you look at a single leaf under a microscope, and you look at the cells and all the parts of the, of, the, of the cells and how they work as a unison to eat light from the sun for energy. You have to go, how can you, how can you not worship God when you're faced with nature? That's what I want to try to find out from the, from the atheists. How do you do that, really? It makes no sense. All um, God who reveals himself, you know, when we, when we look at the nature, we, we do marvel at his design and his perfection and his, and his intricacies. But God has cared enough to reveal himself through his word. We know that God exists because his word said this is how he manifested to, into the life of Moses. And he invites us into that story. When we read the Bible, it's not like a disengaged thing from a remote distant past is a living thing that is importing, us, importing into us now. It has a relevance, a direct relevance to us today. To believe in God is not just to sit still since God will fight for us. For the longest time, that was my attitude. Like, well, God will fight for me so I could just trust Him. That's not what faith is only. It is also His command for us to move forward. He will say, what are you doing? Just to, you know, kneeling down and just, just crying out to me. Lift up your staff and move, tell your people to move forward. That's sometimes what is required of our faith, along with our sons and daughters. This is a definition of faith I want you all to memorize. Have it committed to memory. I'll ask you sometimes a point-blank question. I'll ask, what is the biblical definition of faith? If you go to Hebrews 11, Faith is the confidence of the things hoped for and the assurance of the things unseen. Every Sunday, when I look at the empty spaces here during ESC service, when I look at the turnout on the online, it can be pretty discouraging for the preacher. Sometimes I have to sit there and I have to interpret this as like a sign from God. God, you know, 
Am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? There's sometimes like that. But you know what my eyes do see? I see the people that are here, and I see people in the future that will, that will be here. It is a confidence of the things hoped for in my heart and an assurance of the things that I don't see yet with my eyes. To trust only in the things that you see with your eyes, what kind of faith is that? That's not faith. You know what that's called? It's called empiricism. That's what it's called. does not mean that it's just a posture of, or an attitude of, of the heart. What faith does involve, it does involve self-denial. What we see in the present text today is that, that to do our part is also very important in believing in Him. We have to do our part. Faith is action. Faith is an active thing. In faith, a patient waiting, in other words, as a kind of inactivity may sometimes be necessary. Very important. Sometimes we wait on the Lord. But the fruit of that faith, without exception, comes by way of action. Because you trust God, you leave your home country. Like when, I, when God says, tells Abram, leave your hometown. Without leaving that, that action, you have to ha- have that action for, for, that, for that faith to come to life. You know? When you say you love Jesus... And, and then you have to have that gathering together. You have to, you have to come out of the shells and, and, to, and to, to bond together in that fellowship and that worship so that our faith will materialize, become concrete. It's not just an attitude of the heart. If, uh, if some people see our faith as like a stifling thing, as an inactive thing, kind of a, uh, kind of a bore, This is only because they have not seen the missionaries out in the world who tackle head-on the very, very real problems of the world in sin through the gospel in very specific, intentional, and strategic ways. There is actually a mission group called International Justice Mission. I don't know if you remember me preaching about it one time. Uh, You know, in like Latin America, there are like small villages that are kept poor, crippling poor, because there are men that go around and sleep with young girls, 12, 13-year-old girls, who would have had a future in education and going, going, you know, and given that whole village a little hope of, you know, coming out of their poverty, they get pregnant. And then they have a child. And if they were able to form a unit as a family and then they were to raise, that would be a different story. But these men, they go to another village and they do the same thing. Irresponsible. Sinful, right? And you would think, who can do anything about that? Well, there's actually a a justice organization in the United States that go to those countries and then they activate their legal system so that that would not happen continually. Did you know that Christians are doing that now? We have Christian organizations that are making right things happen in light of the the wrongs that are just proliferating all all over the countries, all, all all, all over the world. So the last thing I will have you take away from today's message is this. In God's providence, God's providence includes our participation. It's not like just God provides, God provides, God provides. God provides, yes, but you have to work. You know, God provides the leads for you to find the job, but, but you, have to, you have to still, you know, diligent, do your due diligence in, in, in handing out your resume. 
know, you have to strategize and plan. When you, have, when you sit down and have the, the, the interview, you have to be able to say those words that they need to hear for them to have a confidence in hiring you. God provides, yes, but it does include our maximal participation and our intentionality. How Jochebed was able to let go of baby Moses on that river, that was made possible by her faith, yes. In one way, letting go and to passively hope was one way to display her trust in God. But the direct action that saved Moses came from his sister. You guys know what the name of this Moses' sister was? By any chance? Bible trivia? A lot of uh, Bible scholars, they think that this might have been Miriam, the first prophetess in the Bible. Moses' older sister Miriam saves, saves her baby brother. Even though we do leave the results up to God, we don't just passively watch things unfold as we have nothing to do with it. That is not faith. It is in the middle of the action, being part of His providence that would count our faith as one that is alive. It's like comparing the people that are in a football game in the stadium and you're just, you know, in the bleachers watching, spectating. Are you in the middle of the action or not? That's not faith. I mean, we appreciate the cheerleading, you know. You're like, you know, you do the cheering from the, from the stands, that's great. But I'm talking about the players, maybe even the coach, the people that are in the game ready to catch the ball, ready to pass that long pass. Our faith requires action. There are those who pray on their knees to God. And that is, I would not call that passive faith either because prayer is a kind of action. It's hard work. Try praying for one hour a day. That's hard work. But I want you to consider on the other side of that prayer are folks who obey God and answer the prayers. If God says, Jesus said this actually, He says, Pray that there will be workers that go to the harvest because the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. That's what Jesus says, right? If everybody only prayed for that, then who would actually go and work for the harvest? There has to be people that hear that when God says, you, 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 go over there, and I want you to, to harvest, reap the harvest. We have to answer. We have to answer the Lord's calling, right? We should always do both. We do lift the prayers. We answer the prayers. Those are two activities of the same thing. Like It's like the right leg stepping forward before the left leg steps forward. When you're walking, you use both legs, right? Answering someone's prayer and to pray to God. We don't insist on just, just doing one thing and watch the other do the other. You know, we don't just hobble. Later on, when we look at the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that by faith... Moses' parents hid him for three months. Even though Moses ends up growing up in the royal palace, by faith, he did not avoid his destiny as a prophet to lead Israel out of Egypt. He had to surrender a lot of his privileges when he did that. When he, out of impulse, killed that Egyptian, you know, in his, in his own sense of justice, he took matters into own hands, he had to give up quite a lot. He fled to Midian, he got married, he started a new life. Even that he had to abandon because God says, now go back to Egypt and get my people out. That was God. Moses had to do it by faith. By faith. By trusting. 
By faith, Hebrews writes that Moses denounced the sonship of Pharaoh's daughter, but rather chose a harder path that was being carved out by God for his chosen people. I pray that each of you, each of us here at NBC, will know that faith that denies itself, that we den- the self-denying faith, but one that also knows when to be thrust into action and not holding back. When, when God moves you as a piece to move forward, you don't resist and say, you know what, giddy up, I will go. I will do your deed. And that you would have the wisdom to know the difference. Know when to pause. Know when to lay low. Know when to move into action. Amen? Let us close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your message today. Uh, We really love this story of how uh, one trusting mom was able to be reunited with her baby under such favorable circumstances. But even then, even then, Moses chose to the path of the prophet. And since we're talking about mothers, we, we, we remember your own mother, Jesus' mother, uh, Mary, who had to watch as her son is unjustly paying the crimes of all mankind in that shame that he had taken for us. Lord, uh, we ask that you would bless the hearts of all the moms and uh, that you would bless them with faith, the faith that knows the self-denial and that passive stance of of leaving room for you, but also that boldness of knowing when to to take action um, so that we would, Lord, do your will, do your bidding in a beautiful way that weaves stories like this one where your providence shines. Let your name be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Now at this time we'll have a time of praise and response, after which we'll have a time of offering, offering prayer.